Hello, welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Questioning Jesus. This series provides honest answers to some of the most important questions people ask regarding the truth of Jesus and Christianity. As we're coming back, today we're going to be continuing our series uh, that we have entitled Questioning Jesus. And uh, in this series, we're going through six different questions that people have regarding the Christian faith. And before I even read the scripture for today, I do want to remind you that you received a handout when you came in. It's also available on our website. And it's something we're, uh, we're, we're kind of continuing to play with. During our series on the seven root vices, we were doing devotions every day. What we're doing now is we're giving something that will kind of last the entire week. Uh, it's got... The, the key idea, or what is a theme statement every week, I give a one-sentence summary of the teaching, uh, the text that we're going through for that day, uh, the kind of key points out of the teaching, and then on the back, it's got questions for discussion and application. So small groups can use these uh, for discussion, or just each day you can kind of take one. There happens to be six this week, so you could do one every day uh, through the week. And then there's also resources for further study. So each week we're kind of given information so you can dig in a little bit deeper, which helps you in applying the word each and every day. So I encourage you to take a look at those. And again, even if you happen to lose it or whatever, if you go to the website and go to the page for this week's teaching, which will be up on Tuesday, one of the links will have that page there for you. You can go access it online or print it out. So I encourage you to please keep checking that out. Um, and one other thing before I even say that, and as we're doing these kind of things, we do welcome feedback for what is helpful for you growing in your faith and stuff. So if there are things that you're liking or that you're finding helpful or even you'd like to see a little different, let us know. And we try to do what we can because we're wanting to put uh, good resources into our hands to help us grow in our faith. With that, we're going to dive into the scripture. Today's text is going to be 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. Again, today's text is 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 21. Hear now the words of the living God through his inspired word. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Last week we looked uh, referencing the uh, resurrection of Jesus and questions people have about that. And one of the things is that not all, but many of the resources we have that point to the, the historical uh, record regarding Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are, of course, in the Bible. So then that would lead to another question. 
regarding is the Bible trustworthy? Why would we believe the Bible? And in fact, this is something that they constantly do polls asking Americans, our neighbors, what do you think regarding these things? And in the most recent poll uh, that Gallup did in 2017, 26% of Americans, so just over one in four, and given a range of statements, said the one that they most closely identify with, this is closest to what I think regarding the Bible is this. The Bible is an ancient book of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded by man. So, in other words, it's just, it's kind of like a bigger version of Aesop's fables, or ideas that like, you know, somebody like Plato would have written down, or whatever else. It's just a book that humans put together, uh, and that's what we have, and that's what scripture is. And that was what one in four Americans said, most closely identified with what they believe. Now, some of the questions could have been worded a little bit more carefully, but that's what they were. And the key thing that they pointed out is this is the highest percentage ever. This percentage has been slowly growing. But it's important to understand this belief's not new. It's actually been around for quite a while. If you go down uh, in the Library of Congress, you can see a copy where Thomas Jefferson, uh, near the time of the founding of our country, actually took the New Testament and literally took basically an exacto knife and cut out the parts he didn't like that he thought weren't true. Uh, and they were basically anything that taught the deity of Jesus Christ or even the resurrection, any kind of miraculous thing. Jefferson pulled out and said, well, that stuff's not true. I like the New Testament. I just like my edited version better. And so that was Thomas Jefferson a couple of hundred years ago. So we have to face this fact that many people, including even many who would call themselves Christians, are fuzzy about Scripture. What is the Bible? And what is it that the Bible teaches? So that's what we want to dive in today. What is the Bible? Can we trust what it teaches? And why or why not? Now, each week in this series, what I want to kind of be doing is first begin by saying, this is what we believe. This is what Christians teach regarding these questions. And then I want to dive into why we believe those things. What is it that makes it where it's not just a blind leap in the dark? What is it that causes us that we say we believe them and then talk about how we can apply it? So let's begin by the Christian claim about the Bible. What is it that, the, that Christians are saying about the Bible that people might be questioning? Well, the, the statement that Christians would say is that the Bible is God's word and it is therefore true in everything it affirms. Whatever the Bible teaches, we are saying is true. And we use sometimes bigger words like inerrant or infallible. But what we're saying is the Bible is God's word, and it is therefore true. When it speaks and says something, properly interpreted, you know, so you have to understand poetry is interpreted like you would interpret poetry, and different types of literature, proverbs are like proverbs, and you know, parables are parables, but when you understand what the Bible means and what it's saying, Christians say, that's true. The Bible isn't teaching anything that is error. It only teaches truth. So what that means is a few statements to tease that out. Christians do not believe the Bible is just a good book. If you, I grew up down south, and down south a lot of people say, well, the good book says which usually is followed by some nonsense. But, that's, <laughs> and what they, you know, that's the same people say, you know, well, the big man upstairs gave us the good book, which usually means they don't really know who God is, nor do they understand what the scripture is teaching. 
So Christians are clear. We do believe the Bible is a good book, but we believe it's far more than just a good book. We think that the Bible is God's revelation to humanity. That God, who is so awesome and so great and so beyond us, had to communicate to us in a way we could understand. And the way he did that is supremely through our Lord Jesus Christ, but then that revelation is written down for us in the Bible. And so we think the Bible is true in all it affirms and in all it denies. When the Bible says this is true, that is true. When it says this is not true, that is not true. When it says this is good, that is good. When it says this is evil, that is in fact evil. Mm -hmm. And so other books, we agree, do contain truth. There's probably hardly ever been a book written yet that doesn't have some truth in it. But we are not claiming that the Bible contains truth. We are proclaiming that the Bible is truth. Amen. And that's only true of the scripture. Mm -hmm. Every other book is a mixture of truth and error. I've got some of my favorite authors, great theologians, but all of their works have true things and not true things. But the Bible is not a book that contains truth. It is true. The Bible is not just a book that contains truth revelation or leads to revelation it is revelation from god so all of the writings are at best a mixture of of these other things but the bible is god's true infallible and authoritative word and so when we when we speak of the bible the christian claim is the bible is god's infallible revelation to humanity and therefore it can be trusted as a firm foundation for belief and life that's the Christian understanding of the scripture. Now, let's go into our questioning the Bible. What, what is it that the questions that get prompted regarding this? Well, one of the questions that comes up immediately is, well, you say that, but isn't the Bible just another human book? Can't I take it as a good book, but not God's word? Because there's lots of good books but that doesn't mean that they are revelation from God. So couldn't that be true of the Bible? And the answer to that is no. And the reason for that is what the Bible claims to be. The Bible does not claim to be a good book. It claims to be God's inspired words. And so to be a good book, it has to be teaching truth. And this is not a peripheral claim. This is very central to what it speaks. It says, this is the word of God. So let me give one of the passages in our passage here. Notice what Peter says that in verses 20 and 21. It says, above all, okay, that, that's pretty strong language. This is the most important thing you can understand about the Bible. That no word of prophecy came, of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God <coughs> as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here's the problem with saying it's a good book. Peter's telling us, here's the central fact regarding the Bible. It's not just a human book. So you can't say, well, I think it's a good human book when the central thing that it says relative to itself is, I'm not just a human book. <laughs> if that's true, then it can't be a good book. You can't be both. If, if I tell you that I am actually God, and I consistently tell you that, and then you say, well, he's really not God. You can't turn and say, but he's a really good guy who you ought to listen to a lot. Those two can't go together. 
So the central claim of the scripture is that it's not just a human book, that the authors speak from God and they are, they are going as the Spirit guides them. That phrase there that the NIV is translated as carried along by the Holy Spirit. That particular Greek word is actually used several times in the book of Acts for ships being driven along by the wind. Okay? That they're being carried along by the wind. That's the, the phrase that Peter's using here, which I love. It's a very descriptive phrase. Each author, you know, if you've ever sailed, two sailors may use the wind a little bit differently, but, but ultimately you're being drawn along by the wind. That's what you're doing. And God, certainly the authors of Scripture, one can't help but read. When I read the, the Greek, for example, I'm working through James right now, uh, just reading the Greek each day. James' Greek is a lot harder than John's. It's a lot harder. He uses a lot more unusual words. There's, there's no way you wouldn't show me a passage in James and a passage in John, and I think they're written by the same guy. They're written by two different people, clearly. So the Holy Spirit is not putting them in dictaphone mode. He's working through their personalities, but the point is he's carrying them along. He's guiding them. He's directing them so that this is not just their words. It's God's word. And again, this is not just a claim that, well, Brett, maybe Peter just said it. It's actually a claim all over Scripture. I'll just show one other place where Paul uses another great metaphor to describe what the Bible is. This is in 2 Timothy 3.16. Paul says that all Scripture is God-breathed. The old phrase was given by inspiration of God, but literally what Paul did is he took two Greek words, one of them theos, which means God, and the other pneuma, basically, or pneuma, which is spirit, and he stuck them together. And it's God-spirited, God-breathed. In other words, the picture Paul's giving is, look, God exhaled through Peter and Paul and Moses and David and Isaiah, and what you got was the Bible. And therefore, Paul says, it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The reason the scripture is useful for those things is its nature as the inspired word of God. And the reason I like God breathed even better than inspired, many of you may have said, man, I watched that movie and it inspired me. Or I, I was rereading this old Shakespearean play and man, he was inspired when he wrote. But what we mean by that is it's very moving. We, we think it's, there's genius in it. That's not ever what that word Paul used meant. What it meant was God breathed out what you got was the Bible. Okay? So for this reason, a book whose central claim is to be God's own word can't just be a good book. It's either God's word or it's a damnable lie. That's what you're left with. Not because those are the only two options that are out there, but they're the only two options for a book that says, above all, here's the most important thing. This is the word of God. Amen. It can't be something less than that and still say, but it's a really great book you ought to read a lot. Its central tenet is false. I was, when I was in the Marine Corps, I was actually on a court-martial one time, and you know, I believe the Marine Corps wouldn't have been court-martialing a guy unless he was guilty. That was kind of the way I went into the court-martial, right? Not our corps. But the problem came up that the central witness for the prosecution, the more the guy talked, the less we believed on central points of what he was saying. He seemed to be exaggerating. And so despite the fact 
that pretty much the entire group of us that were doing the court-martial had believed at first the guy was guilty, and we definitely believed he wasn't particularly a good Marine. By the end, we could not believe the prosecution because the central person giving testimony and the central thing he was saying, we didn't believe was reliable. And so we didn't say, well, it's good testimony other than the most important thing he said. No, well, when you were proven false in that, you're no longer a good witness. The central thing the scripture says is word of God. If it's not true, not a good book. Damnable lie. So two choices. Now, secondly, then people can come up and say, well, I know you're saying that, but isn't in fact the Bible just something that was written a long time after the events? And that's why it's got all kinds of historical problems because, I mean, the people are writing hundreds of years later. But in fact, Peter answers this for us in our text as well. Notice what he says in verses 16 and 18. He says, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is back similar to what we talked about with the resurrection last week. Peter said, look, some guys may come in and be telling you now that we made this stuff up. Tell you, I didn't make anything up. I was standing there when these events happened. And the particular event he's talking about is, I was on the mountain when Jesus was transfigured and made huge and shining white and a voice spoke out of heaven and told us he was God in the flesh. I'm not telling you what somebody else told me happened. I was there when that happened. I was an eyewitness. And in verse 18, he says, we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So the claim that Peter is making, which is a claim throughout Scripture, is that the Scripture was written by eyewitnesses who were writing near the time of the events, not people who are writing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. And that changes the nature of what you're dealing with. Because it's one thing if you ask me, Brett, could you write a history of, say, something that happened, you know, back at the signing of the Magna Carta 800 years ago. Well, that's a little different than if you say, hey, Brett, could you describe what happened in this place you were at yesterday at 11 o'clock? Well, yeah, I'm in a very different place. I was an eyewitness. I was sitting there. I know what happened. And even where the Scripture is not directly written by eyewitnesses, the claim is that it is well-researched and based on eyewitness testimony. For example, the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and I love Luke. Actually, when I first became uh, an elder and started teaching here, the very first book I taught was Luke. Duke McClure and I were talking about that a while back because Duke at the time was not yet convinced of the truth of the faith. <laughs> and we were going through, because I loved Luke, because I loved history, and Luke is a historian. And so Luke begins his entire account, which is actually Luke and Acts together, and he begins it by saying this. Uh, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as, notice, they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses. I, I'm not not getting this from other people. I went and I interviewed the people who were there. So when I tell you something happened, I got a bunch of people who said, yeah, I was there. It was the craziest things. Jesus took a few loaves and he broke them open and all of a sudden it was feeding the crowd. But I didn't just hear this. I talked to people who were sitting there. So, and he goes on, notice in verse 3, therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, 
so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So notice what Luke makes an appeal to. Theophilus, this is not, as Peter's words are, just some kind of clever fable we put out there. You know me. You know how I work. I've gone back. I've talked to the eyewitnesses. I've been taking notes of what they said. I've taken it all down, and I'm writing you a nice orderly account now, and I'm telling you these things are handed down from people who were there, not something randomly made up. And this is actually true throughout the Scripture. And so it's amazing the number of times that the, the Bible, you can even see in the Old Testament where when the books are being written later, they'll tell you, here's my source material. You can go back and read the book of the Chronicles of the Kings or these, these various chronicles that they had. But they're saying, we wrote all of this down, and I'm just passing it on to you. And when you go back to the previous point, all historians have to take out of the mass of data. And even if you're an eyewitness, how do you choose what to speak and what not to speak? Well, that's where the inspiration comes in. God guided them and carried them along. So what was important out of what happened was handed to you and me. Now that leads to a third point because some people come back and they say, well, let's just assume for a minute that actually Luke was right. And he wrote that down and he did careful research. And when Luke actually wrote it, well, it was true. But the problem is it got handed down and handed down and handed down and we play the telephone game, right? And by the time it actually got written down and we've got copies, I mean, it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. And so we don't really know that what we have is what Luke wrote. And we don't know that what we have is what Moses or Isaiah wrote. That, that's the claim that is made. But I want you to notice again, Peter uh, deals with this. In verse 19 he says, we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you'll do well to pay attention to it. So notice what Peter's saying is, what we're reading to you is the actual words of the prophets. He doesn't say, well, we got a kind of a corrupted version of what Isaiah said. Peter said, no, what, what we've got that was inspired and handed down, we actually have that word here with us. But many today claim the opposite. If you like to read, you may have run across a guy named Bart Ehrman. And oh, Bart, he likes to, to write these things and make statements regarding stuff. Unfortunately, his scholarship gets rather sloppy when he starts doing it because the fact is the Bible is the most well-attested book from the ancient world. There's nothing even close. We have far more copies closer to the date of the writing than any other book in the ancient world. If we don't have confidence that what we're reading is Peter's words this morning, you have no confidence in anything from the ancient world whatsoever. There would be none, which, oddly enough, nobody wants to claim, except regarding the Bible. Let me give you just a few examples of what I'm talking about. For the New Testament, I'll just restrict myself to it, we have over 6,000 manuscripts, codices, or portions of the New Testament writings. 6,000 from like within the first thousand years. Homer's Iliad, okay, the, you know the story of Odysseus and all of that? There's about 650 manuscripts total, one-tenth. And I didn't pick Homer's Iliad because, well, I'm giving a weak straw man. I'm picking the best they got. That's really strong. And it's one-tenth what the New Testament is. But not only that, 
the, uh, the New Testament manuscripts, I'm not even including, I can make it more. We've got a lot of other languages. For example, I'm not including that, you know, you could piece together Augustine's writings and get pretty much like the whole New Testament just from Augustine's writings in Latin as he preaches in his sermons. We're not even including all those other languages that it's in. We're just talking about the original manuscripts that are there or quote, you know, and it doesn't include quotes from like early church fathers. But secondly, there's not only more copies, the copies are a lot closer to the original because if you've ever played the telephone game, you know what it's like. The longer the game goes, the more distorted the message becomes. But the good news for the New Testament is we're much closer to the, to the time of writing. It is not atypical at all. It's, in fact, it's good. If you have a Greek document from the ancient world like Thucydides or Xenophon or Homer, if you've got copies within 800 years of the time of writings, that's good. That's good. The New Testament, we have a lot of it within 100 years of the original time of writing. And the amazing thing regarding all of this is it's getting better and better. The, the, that gap I'm talking about is not shrinking, it's growing. We are finding more and more manuscripts in the New Testament, and we are finding newer and newer manuscripts in the New Testament. In fact, some of the ones that haven't even been released yet, uh, a guy named Daniel Wallace, who works with the Center for uh, the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, has estimated that about 45% of the New Testament in the last like uh, two decades has been discovered far earlier than anything we previously possessed for those particular books. We're getting more and more. You might ask why, but it's because we keep discovering all of these ancient monasteries that they've got these copies just kind of stuck up. They found some of them, believe it or not, in a wall, that somebody had stuck them inside a wall at some point, and when they started working on the wall, they discovered one of the oldest copies of portions of the New Testament that had yet been discovered. So it's actually growing. And there had been claims for years. The same thing was true with the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures. If you go back to the 1930s and say, well, what was the oldest copy we had of the Old Testament or part of the Old Testament it was what was known as the Leningrad Codex. When I took my Hebrew in seminary, we actually had to, to read from portions of that. That was from about 900 AD, which is 12 or 1300 years after the close of the Old Testament canon. And so there was all kinds of predictions about, well, this thing got changed and changed and changed. And then lo and behold, when a shepherd boy casts a stone in some caves out in the wilderness, and he hears something crack, and they pull out these scrolls, and they discover it's the Dead Sea Scrolls. Guess what? We now just leapt back 1,000 to 1,200 years, Amen. and it's the same. <laughs> Initially, many of them, oh, we're going to find all these changes now. And then it got quiet <laughs> because we didn't find changes. We found spelling changes that go across. But the message was the same. You can sit there and you can read it. So contrary to what they're saying, we actually have more confidence in the transmission of the biblical text than any other document from the ancient world, which if you just think about for a second, would you be more careful copying a grocery list or even another book that you liked to, to hand down or what you believe was the very word of God? Just think about it for a second. Which one would you likely be more careful about? Obviously, it would be the Word of God. And so it makes sense that what we've actually found is it has been very carefully preserved. If you are interested, and I've got this on the resources page, I did a 
seminar one time years ago on how did I get my Bible, and there's a whole section on how the biblical text got transmitted and how that works. So you can listen for a couple of hours if you are so inclined uh, and look up the notes. And I hope some of you are so inclined. Um, Now let me give three other arguments. Those are kind of, you know, stopping the negative questions. Let me give quickly three arguments for the truth of the Bible that are also here and they're kind of coming out of Peter's text. First, there's the evidence of history and archaeology. The evidence of history and archaeology. Notice again that Peter makes that claim in verse 16, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now why I'm saying that is, is if somebody claims to be an eyewitness of something, there should be other evidence that points to it, which for us, since it's something that happened long ago, it would be history and archaeology. And the amazing thing is, again, there is no book from the ancient world that has more archaeological and historical backing and verification than the Scripture. It has been shown time and time again to be historically accurate. And in fact, what happens over and over again to where it gets to be almost comical, like with Luke, there have been all these examples where they say, well, Luke used this term for uh, Roman magistrates and stuff, and nobody else used it, and it shows it wasn't good, and then we keep digging up, and oh, okay, well, that term actually was used. We've now discovered. But now we'll move on to something else we don't agree that Luke said. And then we work through, and after a while, oh, okay, he was right about that too. We discovered recently, they had, they had actually, believe it or not, some of the scholars had said, well, there never was a guy named David. And then they uncovered things that referenced the house of David from way, way back in Israel's history. They had claimed until recent times that, well, the uh, Aaron's benediction, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make it. Well, that's really, really late. I mean, that probably came up like after the exile. And then one of the oldest artifacts we have, they found a silver scroll going way back. And when they unrolled it, guess what was on it? Aaron's blessing and benediction. It's like, okay. I start to not believe you when you keep telling me things aren't true, and then we go back and keep finding things that prove they're in fact the case. History and archaeology does point to the accuracy of Scripture. Now let me be clear. That does not mean that everything in the Bible has been proven by history and archaeology. It does mean that it's happened enough, I take the Scripture's word for it. On areas where it doesn't go up, it's been enough times that it's been shown over time if we do more digging we will eventually find what it is we are looking for. Again, I encourage you to look on the resources. One of the pages there has got a whole bunch of videos and articles, and you can listen to whole numbers of things about the historical reliability of the biblical text. Second area, which is even more important, is fulfilled prophecy. Notice what Peter makes appeal to here in verse 19. He's saying, look, we're telling you about Jesus, but but you've not only got that, he says, You've got the word of the prophets made more certain. And what he means by made more certain is, look, it was one thing when Isaiah prophesied that a virgin was going to conceive to believe that, but you live in the time where it actually happened. It was one thing for somebody to say that the Messiah was going to rise up out of Bethlehem. You You live in the time when it actually happened. It's been made more certain because it's been fulfilled. There are hundreds and hundreds of prophecies in Scripture and includes prophecies related to the rise and fall of empires, the exile of Israel, the return to the land of Israel, the destruction of Jerusalem, and especially the birth, life, and death of Jesus Christ. And what's important, I want to be really clear, is, you know, if you go to the ancient world and they had the oracles at Delphi, but what was always funny whenever you read their prophecies, 
a king would come and say, I'm thinking of attacking this other king, should I go? And the oracles would say really specific stuff like, if you do, one king's fortunes will change. Well, I suppose that's true, no matter what happens here. So the oracles always hedge their bets. That's not the kind of prophecies we're talking about. We're saying there's thousands of towns in Israel. We're picking Bethlehem. That's where he's going to be born. Long before, Zechariah is writing, long before Israel has come into contact with the Romans, and we're going to talk about the Messiah is going to get pierced by a, a method we don't even know anything about. We, we, don't even, we, we have no clue of what that looks like. Very specific prophecies. Jesus makes really specific prophecies relative to the destruction of the temple, which occurred between AD 66 and AD 70. They, they're clear there. And so the scripture shows these over and over and over again. And Jesus and the apostles made constant reference to this in their preaching and their teaching. Constantly they pointed back to these things. And we have as well the ones that are in the New Testament, particularly regarding the fall of Jerusalem. So that prophecy is something that undergirds our faith. And then the final thing, and this is most important, is the evidence of Jesus' teaching. Jesus in Matthew 5.18 says this, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, when he's talking there, the least stroke of a pen, this is because it, in both Greek and Hebrew, there were certain letters that you would write, and they would become so small when they would come in the middle of the word, they became literally just a dot. And Jesus says not one of those dots is going to go away. Not, not, the, not the smallest thing, it is all going to be fulfilled. So Jesus clearly believed and taught that Scripture is God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. He did this over and over again, beginning of his ministry, to the very end, you can see that Jesus did this. He taught that the scripture has to be received, believed, and obeyed. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important for this reason. As we saw last week, because Jesus is the God-man who conquered death, and he said the scripture's true. And so there is no stronger evidence. As grateful as I am for all the manuscripts, as grateful as I am for the historical record and the archaeological record, as grateful as I am for the fulfilled prophecies, there's nothing stronger than the guy who says, I'm the God-man, you're going to put me to death, and on the third day, I'm going to smack out of the grave, alive before you. The stone's going to roll away, and I'm going to be here, because I am God in the flesh. When that guy says, that Bible you hold is authoritative, and it is true. And not one stroke of a pen is going to go away until it's all fulfilled. You can take that to the bank. I might be wrong. God man's not wrong. Okay? My words may pass away because fact is I'm going to. Sooner or later, I'm going to die. And unless Jesus snatches me out of the dust, that would be the end. He conquered death and told us what to believe. No stronger evidence for the Word of God. So, how do we apply this? First question, there'll be two questions, and then the a worship team's going to come up, and we're going to sing a concluding song. First question, do I understand the claims about the Bible and the evidence for those claims? 
And I say this because, friend, you may be sitting here thinking, well, you know, the Bible is a good book. I think there's wisdom in it. That's not the claim that the Scripture makes. Do you understand that? Do, do you understand that it is not just a good book? It's not just full of my daily inspirational thoughts. That's not what the claim of Scripture is. The claim is the Bible's God's Word written for us, and therefore inerrant, infallible, and authoritative. It is God speaking to you and me. Do I understand that? And do I understand, I'm going to keep hitting this in the series, these claims are not empty, they're not irrational, they're not blind faith. In fact, they're solid, thoughtful responses to the evidence that God's placed all around us. So this idea of blind faith, you know, well, you've got blind faith and we've got facts. No, stop. In fact, I really start to doubt either you don't know what you're talking about or you're lying. Because that's not the question. Okay? I've got as many facts as you've got. And you're living as much by faith as I am. So let's sit down and discuss the actual evidence. And that's what we need to understand. Do, do we recognize that? Do we grasp that? And I encourage you again... Check out the resources. And if you're here and you're a believer and you've got friends doing this, let me encourage you. You don't have to have a Ph.D. to figure most of this out. The best question is somebody says, well, you know, the, the, the Bible manuscript, we, we don't even know exactly what they wrote. Just simple question, how do you know that? And you will usually get nothing but crickets chirping. Because what that really usually means is, I hope the Bible's not true, and therefore I would rather not even check this out. And we can help them by kicking those props out front and saying that's actually not true. Are you aware the Bible's got all kinds of evidence behind it? Okay? Same thing, I've had people, Bible's full of contradictions. Here's my Bible, would you mind showing me one? Which never once in all of my life has ended up with anything that remotely looked like a contradiction. What it generally was is, I'm just hoping again to beat this away because I'm afraid it might be true. Okay? So that's the first thing. Do I understand that? Secondly, and this is what's essential for us, am I walking in faithful obedience to God's Word? Am I walking in faithful obedience? Well, again, this, this is not about, I'm not here for you to leave and say, that was an intellectually stimulating talk. I have utterly failed if that's what you got out of this. Okay? That's not the point. Because again, that's not, that's not what the Bible is driving at. We are not called to sit in judgment of God's Word. God's Word sits in judgment of us. And it would be just as foolish as if I went and appeared before the Supreme Court and just told them, hey, hey, you all stop talking. I'm going to pass the, the decision here. How many of you think that the justices on the Supreme Court would say, oh my gosh, Brett's here and he's going to judge us? It sounds ludicrous, doesn't it? But that's what we want to do with the Scripture. The Scripture's not here to be judged by you and me. It is God's inerrant, infallible, inspired, authoritative word. And it will judge you and me. So we are called to embrace Scripture by faith, letting it shape and mold our thoughts, 
our desires and our actions so that they conform to the will of God. Because, friend, our problem is you and I go out and there are so many things that are coming at us and they are molding us and they are shaping us. And as we saw in the series on vices, they are molding and shaping our desires so that vice starts to look beautiful and virtue starts to look ugly. So that we start thinking this is good and that is evil when it's exactly backwards. And the only way out of that is we need the Word of God to soak into us and to start changing the way I think. Start shaping my desires and my attitudes so that they are right and that I desire to conform to the will of God. And let me point out this is really important for us because those who build their lives on the firm foundation of God's word will find blessing and joy because it guides you into truth and reality, empowering you and me to fulfill God's purposes for our lives. The reason this is important is if you run against the grain of the universe, life doesn't go well. And the scripture tells us what's actually true. And it doesn't matter what the rest of the culture around us is saying. If I gave you contaminated food, and I told you, but it's good food, and everybody around you told you, but it's good food, what happens when you eat that contaminated food? You get sick. It doesn't matter if you believe it's good. It doesn't matter if I believe it's good. It doesn't matter if all the other people around you proclaim it's good. What matters is whether it's actually good or it's contaminated. That's what matters. Well, there is reality, and it is made by God. And he has told us in the scripture the way things actually are. So if you want joy, get into the word of God. You want your life to be under blessing. That does not mean that there's no problems. It doesn't mean that, 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 that there aren't difficulties. But it means if you want to know that your father is walking with you, get into the word of God. Let it shape your mind. Let it shape your thoughts. Let it shape your desires but and i can't stress this enough friends this is why you need to be in the word every day they are discovering more and more and more as they do research i love listening to stuff about how our brains work but you know what's crazy the majority of your behavior is arising out of your subconscious not your conscience it's not what you're even aware you're thinking it is thoughts that are so deep down that are so entrenched that's what's driving your behavior mind. That's why sometimes you know, like, I don't want to do this, and I keep doing it. You remember Romans 7? That which I don't want to do, I find myself doing. That Paul says that. Paul the apostle says that. You know why that is? Because we have, we've been marinated in the thoughts and ways of this world for so long that deep in our guts, deep in the core of our subconscious, we are thinking and approaching life a certain way. And the only way to get changed is the words got to seep down there and change that. So that I find out, I start thinking and desiring and looking and approaching life differently. That doesn't happen by a little bit of contact. It's long-term contact. So I want to encourage you this week, feed on God's Word every day. I encourage you, gather with other believers in small groups, just getting together in, in small groups of people and doing it. And then each Sunday, come to be fed, to have God's Word shape and mold and guide. What we're going to do is the worship team's going to come up, and we're going to be singing uh, a response song. And uh, Beth, if you can go ahead and put up the first lyrics for that. And 
as we're singing this song, we've sung it before, it's called My Savior, My God, but notice this is based on an old hymn. I am not skilled to understand what God has willed, what God has planned. I only know at his right hand stands one who is my Savior. And in a minute, it's going to talk about what God's word has written and how I see that true in my life. That's what we're praying for God to do to us. So I want to encourage you, let's stand together, and we're going to sing this, and then we'll close with a word of benediction. But let this be the, the desire and the prayer of our hearts as we sing this together. Father, we are so grateful that you have recorded in your word truth. Lord, your word is true about who you are, about who we are, and about how you have come and redeemed us in Jesus Christ. So Lord, we thank you that we have your word. And Lord, we pray that you would send us forth this week under the power of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit that we might live for you in your glory, that we might tell others of Jesus Christ, Lord, so that it would bring glory to you and bring joy to us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now I commit you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Go in the peace and blessing of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church. If you would like to support this ministry, please go to www.brcc.church and click the Give tab.